One of the first podcasts I recorded in 2019 discussed the rise of Boris Johnson and the Tories' smashing victory in the UK parliamentary elections. Now, in the summer of 2022, Boris Johnson is out. A new Conservative leader will be in as Prime Minister. What happened? And what's next for UK politics? I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome inside the Blind Politics Studios here at Regent University in sunny Virginia Beach, Virginia. I could just as easily say rainy Virginia Beach, Virginia, but I believe it is in fact sunny outside right now. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte and this is Blind Politics. I'm an assistant professor of government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte or on the Facebook and Instagram pages of the Robertson School. You can also find us through American One. That's American One, your provider of top quality center-right streaming podcasts on politics, sports, culture, and everything in between. Please check out their other fine offerings either on their website or on the App Store. So, there's been a shakeup in the UK as Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to be resigning. At one point, Boris had won perhaps one of the greatest, you know, most substantial victories in recent British parliamentary history. The Tories have a huge majority to this day in Parliament. But Boris, unfortunately for him, has not survived. And there are a number of reasons for that. So in this episode, I want to look at what was the occasion of Boris's fall, the contenders to replace him. As we're recording this, it's down to two. As you're hearing this, it will also be down to two because the final decision will be made, I believe, in September of this year. And, of course, what the long-term outlook is and implications are for the United Kingdom itself. So when Boris Johnson was running for prime minister in 2019, his main campaign issue was let's get Brexit done. Brexit had been approved by the voters of the UK in 2016, but there was no deal and there was sort of uncertainty about when exactly and how exactly Brexit was going to get done. And Boris was elected based on the idea of cutting the Gordian knot. And he was elected with a substantial Tory majority winning some seats that had not been won by the Tories in literally hundreds of years. There were some seats that flipped to the Tories in that election that had not actually gone for a conservative since before the United States of America was an independent and sovereign nation, if that tells you anything about the scope of this. Right, and so uh, the priority then for Boris was to get Brexit done, and he did. Right? Brexit was finalized in his premiership and then very quickly overshadowed by COVID-19. And that's when Boris's problems started. Lockdown was controversial in the UK, probably not quite as controversial as it was here, but more controversial than it was in parts of Europe. And Britain had a fairly strict lockdown at one point in time. Even while the lockdown was happening and masking orders were enforced, 
there were some cabinet officials and members of government who were having get-togethers that violated the COVID orders, and Boris was among them. This was not a particularly good look and created the perception that the rules were for the little people and not necessarily for him. This was a problem for Boris. Another problem that Boris Johnson had was that he didn't have a specific constituency, a group of MPs that were sort of Boris loyalists in the Tory caucus. There are a number of factions, as there are in just about any political party, but none of them had a specific loyalty to him. There was also some policy inconsistency. Boris could be quite conservative on some issues, but really not that conservative on others. And so that inconsistency made it difficult for there to be any type of unified government agenda around him. So 2020 was a rough year for Johnson, and 2021 was, you know, there was increasing disaffection in the Tory ranks. Britain actually did reasonably well in terms of vaccination, but just things were not, not going well. Recovery from COVID was not happening as quickly as was often hoped. But then 2022 came, and probably the finest, Boris Johnson's finest hour as prime minister was during the outbreak of the Ukraine uh, crisis, both before the war and once the war began, Boris Johnson played a substantive role and a positive role in essentially stiffening the spine of the pro-Ukraine and anti-Putin coalition. Um, more than many other world leaders, Boris Johnson was sort of leading the charge and, and keep trying to keep everybody on the same page and, and I would say really showed a lot of leadership in that time period. But the problems continued. He was losing support from, from many loyalists. And the final blow came recently when it was discovered that one of his close advisors and, and sort of someone who worked for him politically, a guy by the unfortunate name of Chris Pincher, was guilty of sexual harassment of male employees and staffers. And unfortunately, not only did Boris know about this, but it now seems as though he may have covered it up. And this scandal was one too many. Boris had just survived a no confidence vote not too long before the scandal broke out because there were a number of more sort of backbench Tory MPs who were dissatisfied with his leadership. But the Pincher scandal was the final straw. Cabinet ministers began to resign en masse. Boris initially was uh, defiantly claiming that he was going to uh, stick it out but I think it became clear to him that if there was another no-confidence vote, he would not survive it, and rather than go down that way, he decided to resign. So, what happens next? Well, a resignation does not immediately prompt a new election. What it prompts is a new leadership race. So, within the Conservative Party, this led to a flurry of people declaring their interest in running for the Conservative leadership. Now, a little bit of background on how this conservative leadership process works. Candidates will declare, and then they need to get a certain number of signatures and, and have a certain amount of money to qualify for the race. So candidates declare, and then candidates have to qualify and meet the, the, the qualifying threshold. Once that is done, there is an initial vote of the members of parliament, the MPs from that party, uh, from the, the conservative party. And the MPs will winnow the candidates down to the top two finishers. And then the full membership of the Tory party, those who are dues-paying members of the Conservative Party, 
will have a chance to vote. I believe ballots are actually going to be sent out in the mail and have to be postmarked and returned by a certain date. They will then be counted and the winner will be announced. A number of candidates ran and we are now down to the top two. So I will describe some of the candidates who, who ran. Just a couple of the highlights of, of people who ran and got close because we may expect to see them in prominent roles whenever the new government is formed. This includes Suella Braberman, who I believe is the current Attorney General. It includes Sajid Javad, who was a health minister. It includes Kemi Badenoch. Kemi uh, Badenoch is, I think she's currently a junior minister for equalities or, or something, I'm not exactly sure. But she was a, a Nigerian immigrant to the UK, came there when she was 17 and is very much, has been known as a staunch conservative on the, on the Tory side of things. You know, has a profile as someone who's an activist against wokeness and you know, has, has gained a lot of prominence. I think she's someone who helped herself in the leadership race, someone who gained by the way that, that she conducted herself. And she will probably get a more prominent position in government as a result. And I wouldn't be surprised if she ends up as conservative party leader eventually. Uh, she's fairly new, and so she's got some time. Penny Mordaunt came in third. Mordaunt was previously Minister of Defense briefly under Theresa May. She's been sacked from that position by Boris Johnson. Her, her successor, Ben Wallace, was actually considered somebody who might be a favorite early on, but he declined to run for the leadership and so obviously could, could not be. But Mordaunt has a military background. She was known as someone who's a little bit more maybe on the fiscal conservative side, but, but a little bit more socially moderate. Transgender issues tend to be the big dividing line for UK conservatives between people who are more conservative and people who are less. She was on the less conservative end of that uh, spectrum, perhaps. There's also just in general some of the, some of the woke stuff. Uh, it's not to say that she was extremely leaning in that direction, but just, just sort of more moderately in that, in that direction. Okay? The top two are going to be running now, and, and the MPs winnowed it down to two ministers in the previous government, former Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is basically the, the guy who's in charge of all the finances, Rishi Sunak. So, Let's break down these two candidates a little bit. Rishi Sunak is a child of Indian immigrants who grew up and attended some, some very good schools. I think he's an Oxford grad. Got an MBA from, I think it was Stanford over here, where he met his wife, whose father is one of the Indian millionaires in Great Britain. Sunak and his wife are very well off, uh, and he had a very successful career in finance before coming into the Conservative Party. As Chancellor of the Exchequer, he started out as very popular, but had made some unpopular decisions about the finances of the country in recent years, so his popularity has taken a bit of a hit. But he is definitely kind of an establishment-ish figure, you know, someone who is running for, for you know, more as, as the, the candidate who is sympathetic to some of the financial elites. He's also very young, I think he's 42 or thereabouts. You know, fairly, fairly charismatic candidate in a sense. You know, he presents well, he, he speaks well, is very polished and knows the issues. And so, you know, he, he is he's running in, in that vein. Liz Truss is 
I think 46 or thereabouts, so fairly young candidates, the both of them, uh, in terms of, you know, for, for prime ministers and, and leaders at that level. Truss is kind of an interesting story. Uh, she was initially actually a Lib Dem, Lib Dem, Liberal Democrat activist in her youth. The Lib Dems, for those who don't know British politics, kind of started out as a party that was more moderate than Labour, but less conservative than the Tories. They were a little bit of a centrist party. Since then, as Labour moved to the center under Tony Blair, the Lib Dems were kind of all over the place and I think have sort of become more of a party of certain regional interests. It's hard to say exactly where they are these days because there's not a lot of consistency to their political program and it's, it's very hard for them to figure out like it depends on kind of where labor is then they're going to try to be in that part of the left or center left where labor is not. So Liz Truss started out as Lib Dem, subsequently became a Tory. She is Obviously, she was the former uh, foreign secretary, so she's been associated with the situation in Ukraine. She's definitely running as kind of the heir apparent to Maggie Thatcher, to the point of even like kind of recreating the Maggie Thatcher look in a couple of her public appearances. You know, she was explicit in her uh, announcement speech, I will run as a conservative and I will govern as a conservative. And so she's representing sort of that more traditional, what we call conservative wing of the conservative party. This will be in contrast to someone like, say, a David Cameron, who is, who is sort of trying to run as a, a more moderate version of, of the Tories. Truss has, doesn't present quite as polished as uh, Sunak does. And, you know, there have been some stumbles and, and miscues and misstatements and things like that. She's not as polished, but she certainly is, is running a, a dogged, persistent campaign, consolidating that faction of the party. She has the policy chops. I mean, she's written you know, policy, policy books for think tanks and things like that in the past. I would say Sunak is a bit more of a polished communicator, um, but Truss is, is maybe leaning a little bit more into uh, the base, the rank and file. As far as handicapping the race, betting odds are leaning toward Truss at this point. And early polling indicates that she has a, a bit of an advantage, but there's a lot of time to go in this race. There's a lot of time for people to sort of make up their minds. There will be a number of debates between them. One other interesting thing about this, neither of the candidates, as far as I can tell, are, are Anglican, <laughs> members of the Church of England. Uh, Rishi Sunak, I believe, is Hindu. Uh, Liz Truss is a Roman Catholic, I believe. Uh, at least she went to Roman Catholic school at one point, so I don't know if, if she still is, but I believe that that is the case. So you would certainly have the next prime minister not being a member of the Church of England. Uh, that's pretty common at this point, but it does raise the question of, you know, what happens when the next, the next king comes in who is maybe not as, as supportive of church establishment as was Queen Elizabeth? Will we start to see movement toward a disestablishment of the Church of England? And what would the implications of that be for uh, not only British politics, but also for the Anglican Communion? That is something to definitely keep, keep an eye on. I don't think that labor would be particularly opposed to that either, so we will have to see how all of that shakes itself out. I would say probably tr uh, Truss is a slight but significant favorite. The race like leans Truss at this point. So what changes can we expect in terms of international politics, in terms of British politics, etc.? I would expect you'll see an election in the next couple of years. I don't think they're required to call one until 2024-ish. And I don't see either Truss or Sunak if they become the next PM being interested in doing that anytime soon. I don't see either of them being in a huge rush to call an election. 
That being said, there is a chance that Labour could get back into power. One of the other things that helped Boris before in 2019, other than his campaign to get Brexit done, was the fact that he was running against Jeremy Corbyn, who was a phenomenally unpopular leader of Labour and was far to the left. The current leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, is not considered to be quite as extreme as Corbyn, and so Labour would have a shot there. However, it's worth keeping in mind that the last Labour leader to actually win a general election in Britain is Tony Blair. Which either means Labour is overdue, or that Labour is just in, in a rut and is going to have a hard time really getting there. So the question then becomes, is it time for a, is Britain due for a snapback? Or do the Tories just have a durable advantage because of vote splitting between Labour and the Lib Dems? And that remains to be seen. Um, in terms of international politics or some of the global things that are happening, I don't expect a huge difference between Sunak or Truss on one hand and Johnson on the other. Both of them were cabinet ministers in Johnson's government. Truss was the foreign secretary, so certainly she would be continuing, I think, a lot of the previous policies. Both are going to be just as adamant as Boris was in terms of things like supporting Ukraine. I don't see any change in that. In fact, even if Keir Starmer were to win in labor, you know, and there would be a labor government, I don't see much change there either. There's very little support in British politics right now for changing that attitude. And they do see Russia attacking Ukraine as a security threat and a security issue. And nor do I see any of these potential prime ministers as really wanting to tilt dramatically away from the United States. Tr Truss or Sunak will probably continue a lot of Johnson's policies vis-a-vis -vis Europe. You could see if there's a new Labour government, you could see them you know, trying to sort of reintegrate some aspects of things and, and move maybe a little bit closer to Europe than the Tories would. But that's something that we would be looking at maybe in the 2024-ish range. So is this the last we'll see of Boris Johnson? Uh, it wouldn't be totally unprecedented if he tries to come back at some point again in the future. Although he also wouldn't shock me if he gets out of politics altogether. Uh, he was someone who had a non-political career, was a, was a writer at one point in his life. So, you know, we'll have to see what the future holds for, them, for him. Altogether, a fascinating, sort of mercurial, interesting character in British politics. And so it will be interesting to see who is the next PM of Britain. And we will continue to follow that race and keep an eye on it here on Blind Politics. That's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, through Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte, or through the Robertson School. And you can find us on American One via their website or the App Store, along with other fine center-right and conservative podcasts on politics, culture, sports, and everything in between. Once again, thank you for listening, thank you for watching, and for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.